Amen. So we are in a new series that's going for three weeks now and then start again later in the year called Satisfy Us, Pursuing God Through the Psalms. And when you are in pursuit, you don't always know which way you'll go, do you? Because you are just following the one you want to get close to and you will go wherever they lead you because you want to catch them. Sometimes that's really exhilarating, isn't it? Other times it's downright scary because we don't have the control. And I don't know about you, but a lot of us like to have the control, don't we? And if we don't have it, we really want to know that the person who has it is making choices for our good, don't we? Now, this morning it is my privilege and my responsibility to take the lead of this service. It's all been planned. Uh, Some of you... I've got one of these little sheets because we know where we're going, but I'm going to be a little bit extra today and put up on the screen a plan of the next half hour or so. There you go, you can have a look. Um, You can be prepared for what's coming and you might notice I've got musical item, musical item, musical item up there. Okay, I'll let you know now that a couple of these are recorded, they'll be on the screen and... They say stand. I did sort of think, well, I might play the whole piece of music or I'll just play a snippet. And I thought, no, I'm calling the shots today. We're going to play the whole piece of each of these pieces of music. Some of you will like them. Some of you, it might be a challenge. But I ask you to embrace them in the spirit in which they were composed and performed as we go along today. Now, no one's forcing you to stay, so that's okay. But I do hope... (laughs) that you have come in here with a sense of anticipation this morning for what God has for us. And I also hope that, if you know me, you're reasonably confident that it should be worth hanging around for, hopefully. Uh, And even if you don't know me, if you haven't been here before, the very fact that you've walked in the door of a church, you're probably expecting the person up the front to have some sort of accreditation to be here, so you're willing to be all in today. So here we go. Today we are looking at Psalm 2. I've called the message, reign in us, rule over us, make the decrees, Lord, and we will follow your plans for us. We're saying we are pursuing you, God, satisfy us by reigning over us. And can I say right from the outset today that I am a person who, on the one hand, does like to be in control of things that are going on, but then on the other hand, gets a little bit stressed that she can't cope with that. So it is so liberating to be able to hand the reins over to somebody more capable than me. Do you know that feeling? And not just someone, but the one. You know, I have certainly found that to be true this week. When I first read Psalm 2 a while ago, I really didn't find it all that inspiring, just to be honest with you. And even coming back to it to prepare the message, I thought, oh, what have I done? Why did I pick this one? I needed to stick with it and find the gold. And I did find gold. And for me, it was joy this week, joy in exploring this psalm and the promise that it has for us. Psalm 2, it is a little bit obtuse. It's about worshipping God and Jesus, but probably it's not one that we memorise and have as our favourite psalm, but it is a very important psalm. So today I'd like to help you make a little bit more sense than maybe you already have of the psalm, and more importantly, I want to see how we can apply it to our lives. So I'm going to give you three quick things to start, little kind of nerdy things, I'm sorry, but they might help you understand why I'm saying what I'm saying, why I'm presenting the message in this way 
uh, as we explore Psalm 2. So three things, structure, setting and significance. Structure. Psalm 2 is a highly stylized piece of writing. In the original Hebrew, it is obviously carefully crafted poetry. There's wordplay and there's rhyme. We lose that in English. But in any language, it has a very definite structure of four equal parts, four different voices, each taking three verses. Psalm 2 is very well structured. Setting. Psalms are all songs. We said that last week. They're songs that were used regularly in worship in the Jerusalem temple, and in the temple there were also instruments that went along. God designed music, and God designed us so that music would impact us. Music, it's a powerful tool, and it reinforces the message and the meaning of words because it impacts us. It impacts us physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Not necessarily all of us in the same way all the time, but it is a powerful tool. And Psalm 2 is set to music and it was originally used in a setting that was filled with music. Significance. Together with Psalm 1, Psalm 2 has been intentionally placed like two pillars of a gateway at the beginning of the book of Psalms. It introduces all that is to follow. And it's also one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament, second to Psalm 110. The New Testament authors found it an incredibly important psalm in understanding who Jesus was. So on those recommendations, it's a psalm that we should pay attention to. Psalm 2 is a very significant psalm. So I hope you can see why I will emphasise structure in this message. I hope you'll understand why music is being chosen to help us understand the message. And let's pray that the Holy Spirit will show us the significance of this psalm to our lives. So now, without further ado, would you please stand respectfully for this piece of music? Nice and loud. It is on. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. 
Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will be led to destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 2 was composed for the coronation of a king. Like all psalms, Psalm 2 had real purpose in the life of God's people. And this had particular purpose in the royal court and the sacred temple of Israel, the two significant institutions in the lives of God's people. But like the trimmings of any institution, relevance and purpose can be lost or change with time, can't they? So the best work of scholars tells us that originally this psalm was a liturgy read by four different voices, giving four different perspectives as the king was brought to be crowned. So first, in these first... Good job, Noriah. We hear the rebellious voices of the world at large. Nobody wants to come in under the rule of Israel and Israel's king or Israel's God. But then we have God pictured laughing from his lofty throne in heaven, they have no hope of stopping him from putting his king right where he wants him to be. Then the voice of the king is heard and he is confident of God's backing. He knows that he is on the throne because God has put him there and the power that he has comes from God. And then to finish, we hear the voice of wisdom. It's speaking, it's warning the rebels to toe the line and to bow in allegiance to Israel's king, God's king, or else. Blessed are those who take refuge in this king. So perhaps we could imagine the coronation of a king in Israel 3,000 years ago. Perhaps not. But you know, when the book of Psalms was compiled during post-exilic times, the authors could only imagine the coronation of a king in Israel because there was no king in Israel. Even when there was a king... Most of their reigns fell very, very short of the expectations of this psalm. You know, Solomon had the golden years, maybe the 40 golden years, but in comparison to all the other superpowers of the world, Israel's monarchy was not all that impressive. God had given King David a promise that his house and his kingdom would endure forever, that his throne would be established forever, yet barely 400 years later, the Davidic line of kings had ceased. So this coronation psalm, this royal psalm, it could have been discarded as too sad a reminder of what might have been, what had been lost, but it was transformed into a statement of great hope in God to keep his promise. God's people know God does not lie. God's people know that he keeps his promise. He is faithful and his word is good forever. And as much as the people of Israel knew that they went into ex exile, because that was punishment for their disobedience, as God had told Moses. They also knew that they would be rescued from exile because of the promise that God made to Moses. And in the same way, as much as the people of Israel, they knew the king was punished because of the warning that God had given to David, they knew that one day the rightful king would be enthroned because of the promise given to David. So when the people of Israel saw their king taken into exile and dying, it didn't crush their hope that God would remain faithful to his word. And their hope really intensified as they returned from exile back to the land of the promise 70 years later, exactly as Jeremiah had prophesied. 
God was sticking to his plan for them. Under foreign rule, they were back in the promised land. And instead of kings, it was priests who were taking the lead of God's people. And the priests were really focusing the worship and everyday life on looking towards this coming king, building expectation in the lives of the people for the king who was to come. They knew that the anointed one in the line of David would defeat all of their oppressors and would establish his kingdom where they would reign with him. People from all nations would come in and join with him forever and ever living in the blessing of the Lord. So Psalm 2, it could have been discarded as some irrelevant relic, but instead it was transformed into a beacon of hope because behind the Davidic king with all of his human failings stood Yahweh, the eternal king of heaven, the promise-keeping God of all. So when we read Psalm 2, it reminds God's people of who is reigning over them. It inspires them to, to declare joyfully over and over again in the Psalms, the Lord reigns. The Lord is coming to rescue us and he is really going to reign forever and forever. Does us good to remember who's really reigning, doesn't it? You know, the coronation yesterday, it was proclaimed as a Christian act of worship and the theme of the liturgy was called to serve reflecting the commitment that the king makes to serve God. And it's highly appropriate for a sacral monarchy. Kings do not have the divine right, but they are anointed by God to provide and protect his people. Now, possibly few of us invest much in the coronation rituals this weekend, and probably even fewer still think that the King of Australia has any real power reigning over us in this day and age. But you know, there are plenty of powers in this world who want to reign over us, aren't there? There are powers who are demanding our homage, who are vying to rule our days and to rule our moments. There are powers around about us who are conspiring against our God, who are loudly and proudly throwing off any allegiance to him or any desire to obey him. And those powers are putting increasing pressure on us as God's people to join in the rebellion. Or at the very least, they'd just like us to shut our mouths, wouldn't they? They don't want us to speak about God and his ways. They want us to affirm their right to enjoy being masters of their own destiny. So it does us good to remember, despite what the world and all its power mongers might throw at us, God is enthroned in heaven. It also does us good as a church to remember who really reigns over the church. You know, we are all aware that the rot has set in over the centuries, hasn't it, in the church? And the world loves to celebrate when something in the church goes wrong, when leaders fall. I'm sure you've all seen programs like Spotlight or 60 Minutes that really gloat when churches have problems and when leaders fail. And leaders have failed badly. They fail when their allegiance shifts from God, when their allegiance then goes to God's lesser gods of fame and fortune and fun or fornication. And it can be really discouraging to look around the church at times, can't it? But you know, we remember with hope that beyond these leaders with their human failings stands Jesus, the head of the church, the eternal king of heaven, and the ultimate evidence of the faithfulness of God to the promises that he has made. So I wonder, that's the first time I've mentioned Jesus, I think, has, your, has he been in your mind all along as I've been talking about Psalm 2? When the royal court of Israel was no more, Psalm 2 was repurposed. 
It took on new life as a messianic psalm, an expression of hope of God's people. And with the benefit of where we stand today, we know this psalm is all about Jesus. Announcing his primordial... Oh, be nice if I got my words right sometimes, wouldn't it? God had a plan from before time began to send Jesus at just the right time, his son. And in announcing his coming, all four of the gospel writers draw on Psalm 2. Jesus is the son of God. Matthew says of Jesus, he is the son of David, the king of the Jews. Mark says, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. Luke says, Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord, the son of David, the son of God. And John just goes straight for Jesus is God. But he does use a lot of father and son language later on. Psalm 2 draws directly from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. I will be his father, he will be my son. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfilment of the promise. So for the gospel writers, for the early church and the church ever since, Psalm 2 becomes all about Jesus, the beloved son of God. But the gospels only use a little smidgen from Psalm 2. So when we get to Revelation, that John really takes this psalm and he puts it into high gear because over and over again, John draws on Psalm 2 as he tells of the return of Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The psalm is finally understood in its fullness and we are the people of God. We are waiting in certain hope of our King returning. So what the Holy Spirit revealed to the gospel writers was that Jesus was the son of God. He was obedient to his father's will. He laid down his life so that people from all nations could come in to the kingdom of God. But what Jesus Christ revealed to John was that he will return, not merely as God's son, but as God's warrior king. He would be ruler over all the kings of the earth. And at that point, Every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord. And people from every nation and tribe and tongue would come in and worship him, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I, for one, am going to be in that number. Can you say, come, Lord Jesus? Yeah. Let's stand. If you get tired for three minutes, that's okay. You can sit down. But this is an awesome anthem to our coming King. Enjoy it. You can sing along.
Don't you love the joy on their faces as they sing that word straight from Revelation? Words and music straight from heaven, I reckon, don't you? Hallelujah to our King of Kings. You may sit down. Apologies to those of you who think that's three and a half minutes of your life you'll never get back, but come on. Brilliant music, brilliant, um, brilliant thought, isn't it? Our King of Kings, our Lord omnipotent, reigneth forever and ever. Now, the Gospel writers, they introduced Jesus, letting everybody know that he was the Son of God, Messiah, King, Saviour and Lord. They make statements like that in their opening pages. When Jesus came, he introduced himself by letting people know why he had come. He had come to proclaim the kingdom. He came saying, the kingdom has come near. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news. He called his disciples to join him, preaching the good news of the kingdom and performing miracles in his name. He did have to burst a few of their bubbles though, didn't he, as the excitement grew, because they were expecting him to come and overthrow Rome and sit on the throne. But the kingdom of God is not of this world. It is not like the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus had to confront his disciples a few times and say, hey, you shouldn't be lording it over one another like the Gentiles do. This is a different way. To be great in my kingdom, you need to be a servant. You need to lay your life down. He challenged his followers to have faith. He challenged his followers to believe and he challenged his followers to work and he challenged his followers to pray, thy kingdom come. The kingdom is the rule and the reign of God breaking into the darkness that has imprisoned this world and it brings good news to all people. The kingdom of God, it's all about radical transformation. It's from the transformation that happens from the inside out. It says one person as a time is transformed by the sacrificial love of the king. They receive a royal commission to allow that love to flow through them to other people around about, one person at a time, allowing the Lord to reign over them in righteousness and in truth, and then in faith, working for righteousness and truth to prevail in the society around about. The kingdom of God is all about transforming our society. I'm actually impressed by what's happening in England today and tomorrow. Sunday is Coronation Big Lunch Day, which encourages local communities to get out and to have a shared meal together. And Monday, it's a one-off public holiday, bank holiday, whatever they call it over there. It's the big help out. It's encouraging people to try volunteering to support stuff that's going on in their local communities. And I can't help but notice when I read into these the strong links to the Christian community in the organisation and the people who are overseeing both of these events. The practical and social ideals that these days are uh, celebrating are appropriate for the people of God, for people dedicated to kingdom living. There has been much talk about the unprecedented multi-faith participation in the coronation, about, about Charles's expressed desire to be defender of faith rather than defender of the faith. But I did notice that like those who have gone before him, Charles entered the abbey to be crowned with the words, in his name and after his example, I come to serve, not to be served. So as Christians, we ought to pray for the new king that by the grace of God, these words will be true in his life. That in fulfilling the role he has been born to carry, he will be a true witness like his mother. His faith and his works will proclaim the gospel of the good news of the kingdom of God. Because whether king of the Commonwealth or captain of a junior sports team 
All rulers, all leaders do well to heed the wisdom of Psalm 2, verses 11 and 12. Serve the Lord, celebrate his rule, kiss his son. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that is taking refuge in Christ and Christ alone. No other name, no other way, no other faith. The kingdom has one king. Jesus came. He announced the arrival of the kingdom of God. And in doing so, he reminded us of what we were created to do. Genesis 1.28 says, We were created together to be fruitful and to multiply, to subdue the earth and to rule over every living thing. Humans were created and commissioned to be co-regents with God, serving under him, taking care of every living thing on the earth. No discrimination, no oppression, no struggle for power, no injustice. Mutually working under God, taking care of his good creation. We know it only took two chapters, didn't it, for this creative purpose to be uh, marred, broken, trampled in the mud because humans opted out of God's reign. And only Jesus can restore us to what we were created to do. Only Jesus can give us what we need to be able to live well under the reign of the kingdom of God because we're broken We mess stuff up in our own efforts. We fall short. And it's only when we receive the compassion, the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus that we can share that with other people. It's only when we submit to the leading of our shepherd king, our servant king, that we're able to follow his example and we can lead others well. It's only when we receive the life that he laid down for us that we can lay our lives down for others. If we die with him, we will live with him. And if we endure, we will reign with him. When we imitate Christ, we are blessed and that blessing should transform the world. So when Jesus was travelling around, he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He was giving sight to the blind. He was feeding the hungry. He was healing the sick. He raised the dead and he set the oppressed free. But Jesus, he often shied away from the people when they wanted to make him king or name him as king. And in the final hours of his life, it's then that Pilate really presses Jesus and tries to get him to accept the title of king. When you read of the trial and of the crucifixion of Jesus, the word king comes up over and over again. King of the Jews, rejected, mocked, tormented, struck and spat upon, crucified, and not a word of protest from Jesus. Not a finger lifted to save himself, despite the fact that he's commander-in-chief of all of heaven's armies. Jesus demonstrated once and for all that he is a king unlike any earthly king. Jesus demonstrated once and for all unwavering allegiance to the reign of the rightful and the righteous ruler of the universe. He showed what it is to live in absolute submission to the plans and purposes of Almighty God. And then, as Philippians tells us, having humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, God raised Jesus up and exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow on heaven, on earth and under the earth and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. Could play the hallelujah chorus again, but I won't. Psalm 2, it reminds us, blessed are those who take refuge in him. 
All around about us, the powers of this world, they rage and they rebel and they conspire against our King. And yet, there is nothing like handing the reins of your life over to him. There is no greater peace and no greater joy than being exactly where he wants us to be, living in allegiance to the kingdom under his reign. But, you know, as soon as we start living with the motivation of getting the blessing that comes with it, something's not quite right, is it? The kingdom of God is not a mercenary transaction that you can buy yourself favours in or a peerage or something like that. It's all about giving everything that we have with no expectation of repayment, giving everything we have because our all is our right and our loving response to our king who has already given us way, way, way more than we ever deserved. For the first time in the history of the British monarchy, the people were invited to pledge their allegiance. Usually it's just the lords and the ladies come forward, maybe the lords come forward, but last night the people were invited. And this was framed as a polite request, not an expectation. You know, Jesus asks for our allegiance to him and to his kingdom. It's not a demand. Maybe you might think of it as a polite request. How about seeing it as the most loving plea you could ever imagine? Pouring out his very life for us, Jesus makes the invitation. He says, come and follow me. Give me your wholehearted allegiance and live for the kingdom. Now, I've asked you to stand twice today as we've listened to music during the message. We have one more piece of music to share, and Mary's going to help. But you may stay seated for this one. And I would say the better posture for us would be on our knees with this song, Before Our King. Psalm 2 advises, kiss the sun. And maybe that makes you think of a high and lofty king putting his hand out and expecting a kiss in homage to his majesty. But can I encourage you, remember the image in Luke chapter 7 of a sinful woman who came to Jesus, who poured out her most valuable possession, her worldly wealth. And she fell at his feet, giving no thought to her own reputation. She covered his feet with her tears and her kisses and gratitude for everything that he would do for her. You know, it really doesn't matter if others look down on our devotion to following Jesus, our King. Don't let their conspiracy theories and their rebellious lifestyles trouble you or deter you from living for the kingdom. God is on his throne in heaven. He has established Jesus as King of kings, given him that name above every other name. You know, we sang it before, that name that is more beautiful, more wonderful, more powerful, that nothing can stand against it. So we want to come and we want to give our lives and response to that king, our king of kings. Oh, 
Amen. Let that be your prayer today. To the King alone we give our life. There is no King like him. As the worship team comes back, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you are our King of Kings. We thank you so much that we look to you as the one who is leading our lives. We thank you, Father God, for your reign and your rule that will go on forever and ever. Nothing can stand against you. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to live every day submitted to the rule of your King, Jesus. That we would invite you daily to reign over us, to lead us in the plans and the paths that you have for us because they are good. And God, we pray that each day we would let your spirit work through us to share the good news of the kingdom of God to those in the world around about us, that we would proclaim proudly and clearly that Jesus reigns and that Jesus deserves our praise and our homage forever and ever and ever. And we pray, God, that you would bring transformation as our lives are submitted to you. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus, giving us every reason to celebrate in our son Jesus. Amen.